This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good evening, everybody. I'm Dartricia Rollins, the Assistant Director of Kara Circle, the nonprofit programming arm of Kara's Books and More, the South's oldest independent feminist bookstore. Tonight's event is co-hosted by the incredible Auburn Avenue Research Library on African-American culture and history. Some quick housekeeping. If you not already purchased the book, you may do so via the teal button at the bottom middle of the screen And if you have a question for the panel, please put them in the ask a question box at the bottom center of your screen. If you see a question that you like that someone else has asked, you can upvote it to make sure it gets seen. And if you would like to watch the virtual event with computer generated captions, please watch in Google Chrome and enable captions. Tonight, we're celebrating JT Rowan in conversation with Adam Xavier McNeil for a discussion of dark agoras, insurgent black social life and the politics of place a history of black urban placemaking and politics in Philadelphia from the great migration to the era of black power. In this book, author JT shows how working class black communities cultivated two interdependent modes of insurgent assembly dark agoras in 20th century Philadelphia. He investigates the ways they transpose rural imaginaries about the practices of place as part of their spatial resistances and efforts to contour industrial neighborhoods. And acts that range from the mundane acts of refashioning intimate spaces to expressly confrontational and liberatory efforts to transform the city's social and ecological arrangement. These communities challenge the imposition of progressive and post-progressive visions for urban order seeking to enclose or displace them. JT is the author of Dark Agoras um, from the NYU Press. He's assistant professor of Africana Studies and Geography in Andrew W. Mellon Chair in the Institute for the Study of Global Racial Justice at Rutgers University. He is a 2022 Social Science Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study. He is also at work on an experimental short film titled Plot with support from the Crossroads Project at Princeton University. Adam Xavier McNeil is a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. McNeil regularly interviews scholars on the New Books in African American Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. Please welcome JT and Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, we here, we here. Dartricia, <laughs> thank you so much for this opportunity and also for um making this happen because it was literally just to give folks like a quick grounding. I literally came into uh, the bookstore and I was like, hold on, 
JT book just came out and I ain't trying to, I ain't trying to buy it from like Amazon. And so I was like, let me, let me go, let me go slide by here in Atlanta to see if, um, if I could find it. And so, um, it had just come out like actually, I think that day. And so they didn't have it, but I was like, y'all should really get this brother JT on. He on this wicked book tour. I uh, see wig. I just say wig. I'm this is how I know I've been in New England recently. <laughs> but, um, but I was like, they need to uh, come on and get this brother on for a book talk. Little did I know I would be the person that gets to interview him. <laughs> but I am so happy to to be here with you, JT, and uh, you know to to you know just just talk about your book and you know. When we met, you were at a different institution, and now you're one of my professors at Rutgers. <laughs> so I'm 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 glad that God brought us all together right here. Yeah. And um, and so so just wanted to tell you uh, congratulations on this amazing book that we have the privilege to talk about here today. And make sure y'all please purchase this book. Please please purchase. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really, I really appreciate it. Dartricia, thank you. Thanks to the bookstore. And thanks you, thanks to you, Adam. I really do appreciate you. Genuinely. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And so, y'all, how this is gonna work, we are going to have a conversation for give or take about 30 to 35 minutes. And then the balance of the time is yours. So I can't actually see, I don't know about you, JC, but I can't see who is all here participating. So please show us, you know, who you are in the chat here that we can actually see, show us some love and show us where you're coming from. And please, um, you know, get your questions ready and in the ask question bar on the bottom right, and we'll be able to get in and uh, I'll be able to um, ask the questions uh, to, to JT for you. And so, um, to, to get us started here, uh, JT, um, I asked you before to, you know, get something ready. So can you please uh, have a selection uh, read out to the audience here to kind of set the groundwork for really what you're trying to uh, let the audience know you're reading and now your uh, Karis Bookstore audience uh, to, to know what Darker Gorses is really about, the true yeah. essence of it. Thank you for that. Let me try to share my screen if that Actually, I don't see that anymore. Oh, here it goes. Okay, yep. give me one second, folks. Yep. Um, okay, I don't see it. So I'm what I what I'll focus in on. Actually, I'm gonna go with what you pointed out. So the book really follows the ways in which black communities in the Tidewater, Virginia, and in other places in the South. Um, their spatial practices in relation to plantation ecologies and plantation geographies and that original kind of enclosure and violence and ecocidal violence and anti-Black violence, um, how their practices to, to create worlds and socialize within that place and geography um, is translated in relation to great migration communities in Philadelphia and the ways that that goes on to shape um, Black power Black politics, black spatial politics, at least up through black power, at least up through the 1970s and the early 1980s. So what I want to actually read from um, is is um, a, a portion of some of this stuff that comes out of the slavery portions of the book. Um, and so I want to I want to um, focus in on uh, many folks who who is. To be frank, if I could be frank, just a badass. Like honestly, when we imagine a black woman 
who had who was born into slavery and who um and who you know is uh, still alive in the 1930s and has this very candid conversation with the interviewers for the WPA project so i want to um i don't i'm going to pull um many folks here and just cuz i think it brings to, to to essence the kind of ways that black communities engaged in um in practices of uh, of counter surveillance um of of black world making in a context in which no black world was supposed to exist and again you know as a kind of precedent for the types of um expansive world making that black communities engage in when they get to philadelphia so in her 37 interview um many folks describes um, the ways that enslaved folks in Virginia use, quote, a great big iron pot that they put at the door to dampen the sounds of their worship and to prevent capture by what she termed old patty rollers or um, or slave catchers who, quote, would come and horsewhip every last one of them just because those poor souls were praying to God to free them from that awful bondage. She also recalled the worshipers tying grapevines and other vines across the road. Then when the paddy rollers come gallanting with their horses running so fast, you see them vines would tangle them up and cause the horses to stumble and fall. And lots of times badly, they would break their legs and the horses too. One, one interval, one old poor devil got tangled up so and the horse kept carrying him till he fell off the horse and the next day that sucker was found in the road with them uh with them vines was round wound around his neck so many times yes it had choked him they said he was totally dead serves him right because them old white folks treated us so mean and i have a quote as well um on in the first chapter in the opening chapter um with folks, you know, just describing literally her desire as a black person who was living in the 1930s and who was experiencing very pointedly the, the depression, saying quite candidly, telling the interviewer, Lord, Lord, I hate white, white people and the flood waters are going to drown some more of them. I think um, what's interesting to me is, first of all, the kind of direct confrontational um, relationships that we see enslaved folks were engaged in. Um, I think an intimate plant knowledge that we can uh, garner just from this this um, this passage that I've read from, um, to know which vines would trip a horse is an intimate knowledge of the forest. To know um, also the counter surveillance technologies, you know, ubiquitous in um, the 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 narratives that describe the antebellum period is the use of these great big iron pots or these um, wet blankets around the kind of hush arbor clearings that that enslaved folks use. Um, and also, I think it's critical that she describes the ways in which black communities are um, like. Un, like outside of our imaginations of of Christianity as this kind of pacifying force, she's like, no, like <laughs> we were there praying for God to free us, not next week, not down the road. Heaven is not some far off thing, but saying, no, we want freedom now and, and praying to God for that. So I think that's one of my favorite moments because it's a very explicit um, relationship that is uh, that describes a black geography that describes um, a, a, the the possibilities of a black geography that are derived um, through these counter surveillance measures through other measures of, of black social formation and again I think um, these are the kind of seeds and origins within the U.S. context and in the Americas in general of 
of uh, of a counter vision of black place um so thank you thank you for that question look when i read it i made sure <laughs> this that's the part that like let, just to show y'all like that part that he just <laughs> like i literally like shh, shh, like i had to because i'm like golly she she coming for the flub man so i was like you know it, it's just you know remarkable and just to let y'all y'all know as well like i've one of the cool parts about being you know not only jt's friend but i've also literally been in the archive with him at the library of virginia and so you know we've been um in conversation about about the book uh for for a minute now and so you know it's just really cool to be able to see see how things are flowing um in a way as a junior scholar you know i don't always get the chance to um so, so i really appreciate you for that um and also the next question i have now that you've grounded us um in in space can you talk to us about your choice of space uh because obviously philadelphia um, as a place of the up south has a lot of different migration lines. And so the, the main lines are primarily between the Tidewater uh, of Virginia up to Philadelphia. So can you take um, our, our listeners into your, your, your choice for the sites of placemaking that you are um, speaking about in, in Dr. Gorse? Yeah, I think foremost, I have to acknowledge that it's deeply personal. Like I'm born and raised in the Tidewater in Essex County, Tappan, Virginia. I grew up. Um, and also, um, I have family in Philadelphia and that's um, a complicated history in relation to, you know, my own grandmother's migration to, to Philadelphia um, and South Jersey at a certain point in the 1950s and 1960s as a, as a migrant farm worker. Um, and having a child there and, and having to give her child up when she before she returned to Virginia um, and us not rediscovering each other until the 1980s and really through these kind of networks that bind places like Virginia and Philadelphia very intimately. Um, so I think and, and what you know, I wish I had heard this before the book book uh, was published. But one of the one of the beautiful things, the first book talk I gave was with the Middle Peninsula historic like African-American genealogical and historical society in Virginia. And like it resonated so much with folks because so many of those people either lived in Philly for a time or, you know, you know, are folks who married into Virginia families and then moved to Virginia from Philly, um, you know, and they had like, for example, there's a whole apparently Vine Street Baptist. There's a church in Philadelphia that's so intimately bound with like if you go of you know, an unfortunate event. But if you go to a funeral for somebody that's like Virginia raised, that's going to be where it's at. Right. And so I think I think, um, you know, those kinds of um, connections and the ways that they inform place directly influence what I decided to do. I don't think I don't hold out of course, you know, many, many other communities hold, you know, in some instances, whole churches from places like Georgia move to Philadelphia, like as a collective. So it's definitely not to the exclusion of other places. And really in the first, um, the first chapter, I really emphasize the ways that despite the disruptions of the antebellum period around black geographies in the Tidewater, like particularly their disruption through um, massive sale, um, into the deep south through through new orleans um that the kind of spatial form 
um, continues even in that context and through displacement. And so I don't think, you know, I think there's a similar story and I build off of some of this work. There's similar stories that could be told about Chicago, about Baltimore, about DC, about New York, um, about uh, lots and lots of, of um, about West Coast cities, about the ways in which, um, you know, migrants' visions of a possibility in a context in which they've been displaced from land and waterscapes because of the Jim Crow era inclusion um, enclosures and the kind of privatizations that happen in that moment and create ex exclusive white leisure spaces like those uh, like what people distill and take with them sometimes they don't have anything material it's just in the form of ritual or a memory or a taste of something that they carry that forward so I think um and I, again I think I, I was immediately struck when I was in my 20s and started going back to Philly um, again after having done a lot of travel with my grandmother to see my aunt and my cousins when I was like first got my license, I started driving to Philly. Um, but going back in my 20s, I, I just came to resonate and living there. I came to resonate with how it feels sometimes and not all the time, but it feels sometimes in West Philly, especially like a, a if Virginia had a big major city, like this would be it. Like it felt like a place that is a major Virginia city, but not in Virginia. And so I think I wanted to explore that texture. I wanted to explore what that meant for spatial spatial politics in a city that people imagined home is elsewhere, or that they imagined, even as they created new visions of urban futures, that they really drew on the resources of recent migra migration of, of this whole patterning of um, counter surveillance and anti-white anti, um, anti supremacist modes of creating place that, that they drew on them when they went forward. And I think, um, so that's really how I come to locate those two places in particular, not to the exclusion of what it might say about other places and even non-U.S. places, but uh, but you know, and particularly in relation to diaspora, the ways that place is articulated and created often through displacement and an impermanent sense of place. Um, you know, I really it, it's deeply personal, it's deeply familial, it's my family's history, so that's part of it. Thank you. Yeah, and you know. I hope this is not out of turn by me asking this, but you dedicate the book to your father. Mm -hmm. And and I think that, you know, to also understand the origins of the book, if you don't mind, of course, could you also talk about the role that your father um, also has played in, in your own life as a historian and, yeah. and a scholar? Thank you for that. No, I'm I'm deeply honored to be asked that. I mean, my father passed away in 2017, untimely death. And I think, you know, in in part, that's my commitment to some of these histories is um our liberation and our our well-being um outside of the parameters of us as um live uh, as living in death and i think um you know i think my father was an organic historian my father was not not even he didn't finish high school my father in some ways was not functionally literate um but i gave I, he gave me an oral history a very informal oral history that i recorded and probably if I played it for you all, it wouldn't register as much of anything because we decided to do it while we were driving around. So we got we were trying to do place and and all of that. But he could tell you like 
from a, a range of stuff from where these old country black nightclubs were to the biggest landowner who could see to ride a horse and buggy to church in, into the 60s and 70s to who was murdered at, at a place like he just was um i come from storytelling people and this may shock you adam because you know i could talk and these people probably already get that sense as well but i was i'm quiet compared to the rest of my family honestly like which may be scary for the rest of y'all um but we i come from a family of storytellers and i i take that with me i think that's my narrative power as a writer comes through that um i and i hope to you know especially as books go forward the dissertation book sometimes is harder to strike this voice in in but i hope to carry that that voice forward it's it's my writing power i think when i went to graduate school um you know a certain kind of countryness a certain kind of relationship to a rural southern place virginia um i felt or was made to feel was not an asset let's put it that way right um but i i had through writing workshops and other things come to realize actually that's the only thing anybody want to hear about you know what i'm saying like that's the that's the um the meat of it of a voice for me is is that um the capaciousness of of black language the capaciousness of rural black modes of discussing things um i'm reminded here of thinking about um erica edwards recent book um uh and one of the chapters is on june jordan and she she really engages june jordan's conceptualization of black english versus what jordan calls white english and jordan understood that white english and what she meant by that is this power-laden language that's considered the norm like that carries so many euphemisms for violence and murder and hides it in plain sight through calling it something else and what she what she underscored was that black english has all of this analytic and descriptive power that exceeds that and that doesn't that isn't hindered by that um, because black folks continue to engage in their own expressive cultural um invention and I, I think I'm a I'm an heir to that I think rural black people have so much to say about place and politics um but that is not something that is centered and put often put at the front of what is considered um you know the primary mode of, of of discussion so thank you for that yeah my father i carry with me as as the voice in my head of how to write differently so thank you of course of course and you know i think the last two answers i think really and along with your your reading um as well and, and once again part of the reason why i wanted folks to to hear jt talk is as he just said to bring his own family story into it but also to bring his literal voice um into the story too so that when the time comes that you buy the book and we we know you're going to <laughs> that you can read it with his actual voice in mind too so just to let y'all know on a little inside uh baseball there um now we'll say all right dark agoras mm. i've heard dark before agoras before i read your book what is that? Mm. So I'm not gonna ask it like that, but can you actually talk to us about why you, for a book about insurgent black social life and the politics of place, titled Darker Gores? Tell us why. 
Yeah. So I didn't come up with my title. And I think, you know, single authorship always kind of belies the complex communities that are part of your work. And so originally, um, when I was just talking through what I was talking through and how I was thinking about it, my partner came up with Black Agoras. And then my good friend, Naja Cunningham, um, came up with Dark Agoras as a kind of play on that. So Agoras in the context of um, the Greek city-states uh, in the ancient period, ancient Greece were um, spaces that were associated with the citizen, the citizenry, as opposed to workspaces associated with women and slaves in particular. Um, and so dark for me qualifies that. And I've really, most of the places, especially when the books book turns to the Philadelphia, which is the bulk of it, the, the major kind of portions of it really um, center these spaces that shadow um, the kind of normative and prescriptive um, civic and social life in the city. Um, so I look at those those in contrast to, for example, what dominant urbanists like planners who gained ascendancy in, in Philadelphia in the 1940s, um, what police, what politicians, what they view as the place of Black life. Um, just, just to sort of truncate that in a, in a very specific way, I think so many of those folks, even when they weren't committed eugenicists in the way that we often understand eugenics as um, tied to um, ster forced sterilization and other kinds of reproductive violence and racism, even even though they were often like politically considered antithetical to the eugenics movement, they were equally committed to ridden cities and ridden American life of certain forms, especially of black life, right? And especially of forms of black life that were associated with rurality, with, with plantations, with histories of black landscapes that they couldn't make sense of um, and understood really through a kind of dominant sociological theory that ascends in, you know, in the 20th century from the late 19th century into the early 20th century. What they understand is really just what needs to go, what needs to be removed, what needs to be um, extracted from the city in order for the city to flourish. So I think um, I take under Dark Agoras, the umbrella of Dark Agoras, two forms of, of social life associated with, um, first of all, associated with anti-socialness and also associated with working class Black life. So on the one hand, the underground um, spaces um, associated with numbers running, um, gambling of all kinds, illicit drinking, illicit sexual cultures, um, and all of those things. And in relation to what I, you know, term um, following a number of scholars, um, you know, the, the kind of set apart geographies in Black life. So in a continuum from things like storefronts um, that are already emerged in Philly by 1899, at least when Du Bois describes them, um, to the interwar kind of mass movements, um, like including Father Divine's peace mission, and then um, and then also move in the later 20th century organizations like Move. Um, I take these, I take them as an umbrella because I think uh, under one umbrella because I think they open a different axis of urban life and urban reproduct social reproduction and urban futures and futurity. Um, people that are are part of these worlds are not necessarily looking for to be integrated into the city in a certain kind of way. Um, if you leave the underground, you know, I think about the managers in the chap that I begin the chapter on the peace mission with, they start out as bootleggers, right? It's when it's after, um, Pearly manager, the, the husband who's interviewed, um, 
along with his wife, partially um, by Arthur Huff Fawcett, the first um, Black folk folklorist with a PhD in the U.S. context, um, interviewed as part of his Black Gods of the Metropolis book, uh, which comes out in 1944. Um, and they leave a life of bootlegging and they go join this other really mar equally marked congregation, not associated with the street, but associated with what is marked as a cult. So like, what is that access of black life? Like, what does that geographic and spatial access open up for how we think about the city and how we think about working class black communities as, as vision in the future of the city? Um, it, 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 it's quite different than um, wanting to be integrated into suburban life or wanting to be, um, or wanting to have even access at a certain point when before public housing is marked and racialized and, and marked for, you know, kind of a destructive world um, through its intentional, intentional obsolescence and impoverishment. Like it, it's a, it's a different axis. And I think it's a critical one um, for understanding how Philly politics are shaped. Um, and again, up through black power. So that's, that's what I, um, I understand. Um, and I, you know, I think about stuff like, you know, like kind of classic black study stuff as well. And so I thought, I was like, that's a good title. I'm gonna run with that, like with other folks. So thank you for that question. Yeah. And, and also as a, as a brief, you know, pivot real quick, the f the fact that I saw in one of your um, footnotes, you actually cited uh, Hugh Wayne's uh, thesis, master's thesis on the um, 1831 uh, revolt uh, down in Jamaica too. So as a scholar who's in, very much interested in, uh, you know, slaveholding resistance, you know, I was like, okay, okay, Hugh Wayne up in there too. So shout out to Hugh Wayne as well. <laughs> you know, we know you either watching now, you're going to catch the, the playback. Um, and so, you know, good, a, a good brother, um, to say the least. And so you, you spoke about the set apart and, you know, I, I'd mentioned this before um, we clicked, uh, live about how I see each chapter as pretty much showing a group um, of people, we'll just say, that can really be put into a religio-political tradition um, in Philadelphia, w w which I find uh, really fascinating. But also, um, you know, I, I want to, you to talk a bit more about this framework of black queer urbanism mm. that is also very much central uh, to your to your book, but especially um, in your in your uh, fourth chapter or your uh, Father Divine chapter, uh, rather. And so, you know, can you talk to us about the the formation of this framework, how it works in the book, and and also you know how it works? Because I'll also bring it up because I see a connection with as you brought up black formalism as well in, in connection with uh, Amadi Perry's uh, uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing uh, book as well. So so looking forward to this answer. I know they are too. Yeah, I think um, I think the kind of the religio political stuff, I think is so critical. Let me say that because I think so often, rightfully so, some of the organizations that I write about are very prickly. They're not necessarily organizations that I would want to join. And so I think sometimes it's difficult for us as historians to write about people who we not might not necessarily fully agree with. And so I take, you know, I take Eula Taylor's like very important feminist engagement with the Nation of Islam as a as an important model of this as well like you know 
Taylor, Dr. Taylor is not necessarily trying to go be part of the NOI or, you know, doesn't necessarily align with their politics, but has an understanding that if black women join this space, that there's some kind of um, there's some kind of draw and power there that exceeds what we just understand as just the kind of charismatic patriarchal figure figures at, that are at the center. So I think I, I um, use black queer urbanism to think about um, groups and organizations and practices that, again, produce futures that are out of line with, out of time with, out of ge geographic grooves of um, the kind of dominant formations of urban futurity that are associated with planning, and which ultimately those dominant forms are associated with extraction and, and capitalist accumulation, right? And in relation to Black communities, that often means like displacement and death, if we're being frank, um, or ex at least exposure to toxins and all sorts of other things, like how we figure into the city is not, um, as has never been a full, full, uh, as full, fully integrated in any kind of meaningful sense. So I think about these, and, and to be honest, it also is a part of the kind of edifice, and I'm saying this for those aspiring writers out there, it also comes from the ways that books come together and fall apart until they're published. Um, so I began this work in the dissertation phase actually thinking about radical AIDS activism and organizing in Philly in the 1980s and 90s, particularly through a figure named John Paul Hammond, who helped to found Prevention Point, um, Philadelphia's first needle exchange in 91, 92, as a guerrilla needle exchange before they get some local sanction in the city. And I was trying to get a get to an understanding of this radical care politics um, and that included that where they are seeking to include users, where they're seeking to include those who are zero converted and are HIV positive or suffering from the condition of AIDS or dehoused or whatever, whatever else. They're trying to fully incorporate them into the kind of political politics of the city and who should be included in in, in the fabric of the city. And what that led, you know, I was trying to think about that. How do we think about that outside of the kind of gay genealogies that um, that fetishize Stonewall, but don't understand Stonewall, to be frank, as a riot and also and, and therefore as a part of as a very particular outcropping of, of black modalities of having to engage um, in in dominant configurations of place, sometimes by just throwing a bottle, um, you know, that fetishized that, and but which overall smooth over or flatten, um, you know, Black AIDS activism and stuff like that into a kind of, you know, what's ultimately a kind of wet, white gay trajectory, uh, white queer trajectory. Um, and I think, so I, so the, that genealogy trying to seek where does this harm reduction stuff come from? Like, where does this radical care politics come from? And realizing that, okay, John Paul had this affiliation, and I think partially through the survival um, that that she exhibited with Ramona Africa, he creates in the aftermath of the bombing with another artist, this, this um, collage thing that is an homage, just like a 3D installation that's an homage to Ramona Africa. Okay, what? where does he... He's he's a peace activist. Where does he get that from? Oh, wait, his his father came through the peace mission movement in, in the 1930s. Right. And like so I think I started to put this genealogy together. And then, of course, like books, as they often do, you know, I started to try to put it all together. And I was like, actually, this doesn't the 80s and 90s are such a distinctive in terms of space and politics 
period in Philadelphia and in the country at large that it became a it became another story and so i think that's part of why i held on i still held on to black queer urbanism though because i think what it opened about these lines of flight that do not collapse into easy integration that don't adhere to the kind of um historiographical parameters that we've um, accounted for even in capacious notions of civil rights and black power history um, these folks fall at the edge of that at the very best um, you know move is often portrayed just as bombed out victims um, father divine and them you know seen somewhat in light of, more recently as civil rights like like a leadership in terms of civil rights but still marked as out there and or to use a pejorative term crazy um, what we're taking them seriously mean um, and so that again black queer urbanism opens up this kind of that's the kind of praxis that goes comes out of and is grounded in dark agoras as these spatial figurations so that's that's how i come to that thank you for that and once again folks just to give y'all a quick heads up in the next yeah you know, give or take about eight to ten minutes we're gonna uh pivot to the audience q a so remember in the lower uh right hand side the ask a question bar right there ask a question and we'll make sure to get it to jt here um and so uh with the amount of time that we have left i gotta i'm glad i got your phone number bro because i got a lot of questions to ask you like for real for real uh so i i'll ask this one um you know i'm, I'm also very interested in confrontations as well because Throughout the book, you know, especially in the final uh, about three to three to four chapters, there are oftentimes confrontations with members of the set apart, as you as you describe, and members of even shall we say black bourgeoisie or other um, uh, empowered uh, groups in, in the city of Philadelphia. Can so can, so can you actually talk about and you had talked about the ideas about futurity and space as well. So can you actually talk a bit more uh, for, for the audience about some of those confrontations as well, because I see them not only as um, a geographic, but also an intellectual um, uh, form of warfare as well about the futurity of, of urban space, especially in a place like Philadelphia. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, I think off, I think there is a real tension between bottom up working class black um, configurations that a power that often um, rechannel reproductive labor that rechannel um, like community and communion into potentially subversive forms and the forms of power that also try to take ownership of that bottom up power from the top down. So I think a lot about <clears throat> so, for example, during the 1964 riot, that's that is a kind of open moment of tension um, with between acknowledged civil rights leadership and working class black communities associated with both the underground and the set apart in the kind of in the sense of um, the set apart as reli religiously heterodox or unorthodox. Um, and so during so after um, Odessa Bradford police attempt to arrest Odessa Bradford, who's embroiled in a, um, a domestic an extended domestic conversation, we'll say, with her her husband. She refuses to move from an intersection along Columbia Avenue, one of the kind of main strips of nightlife in North Philly. Um, and when when people when the 
police try to arrest her and she resists, they violently arrest her and that tr attracts crowds. Um, and those crowds are primarily drawn from what's considered by police in this period as the city's primary underground, um, section of the city's underground. Um, and so, you know, this the police mark them as drunk revelers in this, this kind of, these tap rooms or bars along Columbia Avenue. Um, <clears throat> so when they try to arrest her, people are masked and then, the police's response is to send in more, a lot more police because there had been a 1963 similar disturbance. And also, of course, just months before this is the 1964 so-called riot in Harlem. So that Mayor Tate comes up with a whole strategy um, for trying to sequester, you know, to, to stamp out these kind of rebellions, urban rebellions in Philadelphia. Um, but that backfires. So when they pull it, put in a mushroom of police, a whole bunch of police flood the area that just in that it further incenses the crowd um immediate almost a, like 20 or 30 minutes into this as more and more people gather people start to throw stuff from the rooftop they demand that she be released um eventually so-called exhort radical exhorters who are associated at least in the police records with um with islam with black muslims um are are supposedly yelling to the crowd and spreading a rumor that a pregnant black woman had been murdered, which did not happen. You, in the immediate aftermath of that, you get tried and true local civil rights leadership, including Cecil B. Moore, for whom Columbia Avenue has been subsequently been renamed. I think that's that's part of what I'm trying to get at here. Um, you know, try to try to uh, um, try to calm the crowd down. Um, and part of what they do is they go and they, he convinces the city to release um, uh, Bradford, Odessa Bradford from jail in order to take her around with, you know, in a vehicle with a, a, a horn saying she was not murdered. She's right here. People, people's response to that is to throw stuff at him. <laughs> they throw stuff at him. They confront that directly. They call him they call him epitaphs that are associated with being like basically an uncle tom um and what i think what i think i that gets at, at is the tensions between a charismatic leadership um associated with civil rights and even black power and bottom-up formations that um that those charismatic um power formations that they um latch on to um because he tries to as matthew countryman's up south work shows um, Cecil B. Moore tries to parlay that into a dialogue with the city in, in an attempt to basically get more concessions from the city for a, a, the paradigm of integration. But I think what that misses and why I hold out that tension is that it misses the reality that um, that we should probably read these um, the the. Um, well, at least from, in my opinion, and through my research, we should read something like the 1964 riot quite differently. We should read it as a kind of plebiscite against, against capital, against property. And so there's a truncation that happens there. And I think that's a common, that's a common thread throughout the book, even internal to some of the organizations. So I think Father Divine is another, like internal to his own organization. There is that um, charismatic, takeover of what is a bottom-up desire and a bottom-up form of power um you know so i think what draws people into the the peace mission the photo of the peace mission is actually black women's work care work um 
redeployed reproductive labor to feed lots of people, to have these abundant feasts in a context, especially in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, where Black folks don't necessarily even have guaranteed access to food. Father Divine makes a number of sermons where he decries the kind of affiliation of the the food and is like, no, it's me you here to see. And I think we get again there even with internal to these organizations, there's a tension between these bottom up um, forms of power that are often feminized and marked as associated with reproductive labor and therefore in the larger larger political economy of the U.S., not even given any kind of compensation or any of that, and within Black life are often derided as subsidiary to these other forms of of upfront charismatic male masculine power, and I think um, I think we need to further excavate those tensions to actually see those as different power moments and actually to to take seriously that working class black people from the bottom up have these visions and that charismatic authority um it like it only get gains its charisma and its com- convincing power when it is able to perform what working class black people want and desire to at least to some degree and i think um but i think again attending to the lesson for me out of that is attending to those other forms of power that originate what charisma then can usurp. Um, so thank you for that great question. Yeah. And, and if I'm not mistaken, we had spoken, of, um, uh, we had spoken about Erica Edwards's, uh, most recent book, mm-hmm. but you also talk about, um, her first book, which, or one of her, I guess one of her first books, which is actually about, uh, charisma and black leadership, um, as well, which I know that you cite, Okay, I just gotta read a section that just made me laugh. I was I, I gotta do it. I gotta do it, Mama. If you're listening, stop listening. Don't watch. Turn the channel. Move on. We going to page ninety five. Okay, we going to page ninety five. And so this is about um, Brother Grimes, Leon Grimes, mm. as Grimes. <laughs> As opposed to old-fashioned Southern girls, these figures censored pleasure, sensuality, personal gain, and leisure. As Grimes recalled, up-to-date girls, quote, broke him in after he arrived from the South. Although his mother wanted him to pursue his education to insulate him against the vagaries of industrial labor, sex was, quote, all I wanted. He recalled when he returned to his rooming house one night, he found that the other tenants were having a party. Tired, he went to bed only to wake up to the pleasure of two beautiful, quote, up to date girls lying naked on both sides of him. His ability to pleasure both women elicited from these women a nickname in which he took great pride even as an old man who had joined the church. And that name was the young bull. (laughs) This moniker indexes lingering temporality of the plots, grounding of bogans till the cows come home. The up-to-date girls name the parameters of their illicit pleasure and the ecstasy grounding a modern and urban form of sensual leisure in the ongoing possibilities afforded by the plot to lose oneself in ecstasy and illicit desire on the traditional church calendar and as a form of passage between houses common of Bible study and congregational life. Hmm. It's a long, it was a long passage, but I'm telling you, when I read this, (laughs) 
I was like, knowing what we know about Philadelphia naming, calling <laughs> this brother the young bull was uh <laughs> that was interesting. Mm. That, that, that was good, man. So I just wanted to read one more section. And so this will be my final question before we pivot. And I just want to say, y'all, this y'all got to get this book. Please press this green button here to buy Darker Gorse because, like you, you'll be reading stuff out loud and kick, uh, cackling and also being like, damn, I didn't even know that. Let me tell you. And so we know Philadelphia a lot, also based on music. When I think about a figure like D'Angelo from Richmond, connected up to Philadelphia, and so Aquarians and, and that whole movement right there. So I couldn't get you out of here without asking a question. If you had a, to create a Dark Agoras playlist, hmm. who is on this play? Who is on this mixtape? Hmm. That's how, how would you? Yeah, to to get the essence once again. Yeah, definitely. Who, who definitely a whole bunch of blues singers so like you mentioned lucille bogan who i mentioned it there you know who is mentioned it in the in the in the um in the 30s like non-monogamous sex approaching what we might call after marie miller young like a kind of erotic sovereignty in the context of of her production so lots of lots of the blues singers i think are are critical also i think we i would have to include and this is part of the kind of work of this i would have to include some of the like the holiness and some of those other kinds of, of, of sonic traditions. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm slipping on exactly what I want to say in terms of a, um, a specific track, but I think those, um, I think, you know, I think about, there's a portion in the, in the second chapter where I think about Allison Davis, um, the social scientist and his kind of research, um, related to Gunnar Myrtle's American dilemma, um, and the memos that I use out of, of that, um, in order to think about, um, you know, just in in the context very briefly of New Orleans um, and urban is and urbanism, um, he talks about you know how working class churches out in the country in Louisiana like they take up the they take up jazz sound right they take up this urban form and there's this this kind of hybridization. So I think those are the kinds of um, I think those are the kind of texts that I would pull into this are the kind of um, forms that that mark the kind of hybridity of place. Um, and I think I think actually black music is like in that Lucille Bogan that you referenced and that I referenced. Like, again, she says she embraces non-monogamous sex. Um, she she says explicitly um if you don't perform oral sex on me, I'm not performing it on you. Like it's, you know, what, again, what we might see as a kind of, um, and she says over a couple of times in the song that she's in Baltimore, like, and we can't imagine this um, probably, you know, this working class black figure, um, a woman in, especially in rural communities necessarily being so sexually explicit without courting certain kinds of violence. So it's definitely an urban formation that makes her, her, her po the possibility for this and yet the song is called tell the cows come home and the timing of her ecstasy in this you know illicit sensual pleasure is like is it still is this rural imaginary it's still tell the cows come home it's still her reference point um and there's um there's a there's a rag guitarist um that i mentioned in the book from 
uh, that was that was centered in Virginia um, who plays, he, you know, he's not a singer, but he um, rag guitar and he has certain ad libs and it like, you know, references my hometown, um, you know, but again, what I get from that, he's recorded in Chicago. What I get from that is like, you know, the ways that these um, these spatial imaginaries about a place that might have been lost and may no longer exist and nostalgically might not even ever have been there, like how that's referenced in in um in the kind of context of um of 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 great post great migration black life in the urban context and also i mean philadelphia sound is like philadelphia soul we could go on for days like you know whether they philly artists and up through up through the kind of neo soul moment right um one thing i will say like i recently for for the first time talked about this book in philadelphia listen in philly they boo beyonce and if they'll boo Beyonce, they'll definitely boo my ass. I think like Philly got a, a, a rich tradition of music, but notoriously back in the day on the Neo Soul circuit, if you wasn't good, they would tell you about yourself, right? So anyway, uh, just thinking about musical cultures in the city and all of that, um, really critical. So thank you for that question and and for allowing me to like just play with that. <laughs> so thank you. Like, yo, your advisor is, you know, at um at UVA was none other than Dr. Claudrina Harold. Yeah. And so I couldn't get out of here, you know, especially off of her uh most recent book, uh, you know, to not talk about um, you know, black music and such. And so th this is just is amazing. Um, and so uh, we are now gonna pivot to to audience questions. And so we have our first question here. Uh, from our guest Rhonda, can you share your reflections on any connections slash disconnections between Black world making and the Underground Railroad, or is there any relationship between pre-Civil War Underground Railroad networks and the late 19th century Black world making in Philadelphia or other major urban centers? Yeah, thank you for that. I don't explicitly address um, the the robust Black communities too much in the book that exists prior to the Great Migrations period. But I think some critical key aspects of it is that many of the kind of formations um, that are associated with the with dark agoras are in formation already by the 1890s in Philadelphia. And they're definitely coming out of the con a context of um, of of you know, of those communities that are free in, in the context of Philadelphia um, prior to the Civil War. I think, um, you now I think that Black communities who emerge in, that that come to the city and that emerge and burgeon in the city um, after the 1890s, like they bring a different kind of, um, they bring a different frequency to social institutions, but they do often join social institutions that were created prior to, to their being there. So I think about um, um, Charles Tinley, for example, uh, one of the pastors that I cover in the, in the work, um, who notably wrote um, lift every voice and sing. I mean, who notably wrote We Shall Overcome. Sorry, I, we had to, we saw about the Black National Anthem, so I, I'm there. Um, but Tinley wrote that um, he was, he wasn't he wasn't an enslaved person. Um, he was born free because his mother was free. But he basically lived an enslaved person's life because his mother died when he was very young. And so he was rented out basically as a slave 
um, because his father was a slave and he couldn't um, care for him outside of that hiring out relationship. Um, he goes to Philadelphia in the early 20th century, late 19th century. Um, I think after the kind of um, Underground Railroad, he starts out as the kind of like like the groundskeeper at the church that he then becomes later in the um, early um, 20th century and up through the 1920s, like the one of the major, one of the largest um, congregations in the city. Um, and I think he draws so many migrants in, in part because he's able to reference the the history and the landscapes of slavery and all of that, the plantation, and he's able to to draw people in um, into his congregation in part because of that. But I think his like his charisma and his appeal very much reference these these other histories. Another thing I want to say is that part of the underground in Philadelphia's formation is through those communities. So um, it is because prior in the 1890s under the kind of Republican regime that lasts until um, the New Deal era in Philadelphia, basically the Republican um, uh, machine doesn't grant black folks any kind of legitimate business license. So like 90% of the businesses in Philadelphia, even stuff that we might consider like what should be a legitimate business in the from the 1890s into the early 20th century are actually illegal businesses just because the city won't grant black people viable options for for having businesses. I think those are those are I also would say that the helping tradition, this kind of tradition of black people can come from come from anywhere and find other black people that will put them on in terms of housing, put them on in terms of food, all of that. I think that is very much um, definitely a legacy of those kinds of relations that are founded in an era in the era of like the kind of um, runaway communities, maroon communities that really are a central part of Philadelphia's um, history. So I think I think in all those ways, the kind of ethos of that um, those worlds are definitely, in some ways, they're the groundwork that then later migrants come and graft um, their newer frequencies on top of, and and they remix them. Um, so thank you for that question. Thanks. And we also have um, Yolanda Brown, who suggests um, to us here, um, I encourage the readers to also check out Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. That book speaks to some of the same topics, migration, sexual agency, and Black culture. And to make it even better, she even included a Harris uh, Books link as well. So so thank you for that too, um, Yolanda Brown. And before we um, wrap it up here, um, and you know, in case anyone wants to ask any more questions, we've been allotted some extra time. So uh, please use the ask a question bar. Um, thank you, Dr. Brown, or thank you, Yolanda Brown. Uh, you may be a doctor. Um, but um, to you, JT, let me ask you this. You spoke recently, or you spoke a few minutes ago about um, Philadelphia and your your connection to 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 the place um you know and and the experience of uh possibly maybe who knows getting booed you know if they go boo beyonce mm -hmm. so so can you actually talk to us a bit now uh before we head out about not only what philadelphia means to you mm -hmm. but also what does dark agoras tell us about spatial placemaking today in mm -hmm. philadelphia 
Yeah, I mean, I my well, first of all, I had I continue to have family in Philadelphia. Um, so I have an aunt, three first cousins, and a bunch of um second and and third cousins at this point because the kids and had kids at this point. Um, so I'm I'm deeply committed to it. Also politically, like I've as at different points had um connections with groups like Stadium Stompers and other organizations that are fighting to um to to halt the kind of massive displacement of working class black communities in Philadelphia, which is underfoot. Um, so I think I think those are, um, you know, Philadelphia is so important because in a way that New York is not, it is often policies from Philadelphia are often translated to smaller cities because of scale, like 8 million people, like not Philadelphia often has adopted historically, like planning even, you know, stuff that comes from New York. And, but it translates it in such a way spatially that it's viable for Cincinnati or, you know, another rent, another smaller city in the U.S. context and even international cities in a way that New York is not translatable. So I think what happens there is often and also I think it's of great symbolic importance as the first kind of capital it, that that has continues to have kind of resonance with what the city is like. And of course, if you know the city currently, it is un, has undergone massive transformation, real estate investment trusts um, and other kinds of, um, of financial schemes have dramatically displaced black life from the city or are attempting to displace black life from the city. And so I think, um, and I, they didn't do so, they did so under the old scripts of colonization and imperialism. They didn't go and find where there was no life and create life, even though that's the same script that gentrification practices use. They went and found regions that were teeming with life, sections of the city that had life where it wasn't even supposed to be, and then took them. So in Philly, um, I think that's an ongoing di dynamic in the city. And I think, um, and I hoped, you know, I hoped um, for Dark Agoras to give some analytic purchase on the longer history of that um, and how that, that came to be, but also the source of a generative alternatives and world-making futures and futurities that, uh, that exceed the vision for the city as a site of extraction and 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 accumulation, um, and I think again, yeah. So, and I think these are ongoing um, trajectories in the city. I don't think you. I, I'm scared of any kind of formulation that engages with the city of Philadelphia and doesn't take black religious and spiritual communities, for example, seriously. Um, those are a fundamental part of how the city is organized politically and to ignore them would be to ignore what people, where, where people are. Um, so that's what I would say to that. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Y'all. And, you know, we have uh, Shannon Mulligan saying F H R C Philly exclamation showing love <laughs> as well. And so, Y'all, we appreciate y'all for taking the time to chat with us or to, to be in convo with us today. And hopefully you see now why Imani Perry wrote a prominent blur for this book that says JT Rome brilliantly theorizes black sociality, sensibility and spirituality in historical conjuncture. Rome uses archival and critical resources beautifully situating this work firmly in the black studies tradition while simultaneously making exciting new inter Inventions. Most of all, Dark Agoras is a stunning story of insurgent world making that will have a significant impact on the world of ideas. <laughs> and I think that's a great way for us to end for today. And I'm going to pass this baton. And maybe for those who might be doing it, 
I'll let me stop. Let me not do that. And to uh, Dartricia as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Adam. You're such an incredible interviewer. Like really incredible interviewer. And JT, wow. Adam was not kidding when he's like poetics, poetics. Yes. Okay. You're not fucking around with the words. Um, no, truly a really, really beautiful and incredible event. I really appreciate y'all so much, so much. Um, I'm reading the book now. I love it. I think y'all will love it. If you have not already, please buy the book. And the um, the event will be, is recorded. So it'll be available for replay because you might want to go back and replay immediately. Um, it'll also be archived on our YouTube channel with closed captions. Um, the chat will also be here available. I dropped a few book links um, to some of the references that JT made. So you can come back and look through those. And yeah, thank you all so much for a really great event. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Be easy, everybody. All right. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night.